This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thanks very much, uh, Karen. And uh, I, I was out uh, at another engagement at lunch, but I came back in at the end of the last panel, and I think that's a, a very good segue into this panel. And while everyone's just taking their seat, let me make a... Uh, a pitch for a book that I'm reading. I was given it for Christmas and I've just started it and that's The Undoing Project uh, by uh, Michael Lewis who's probably more famous for books like Moneyball and Liar's Poker, etc. But it tells the story of two psychologists, uh, Dan Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who uh, discovered the field or, or accredited the field of behavioral economics. And what they really, what, what Michael Lewis does in this book is does a very nice story of how they use psychology to probe the science of human judgment and uh, really make a very compelling case that we're pretty flawed when it comes to human judgment in the most case. And they give quite a few examples from, from clinical medicine. And just, just one quote from the book that uh, caught my eye. Uh, the power of the pull of a small amount of evidence, particularly evidence that you heard about recently, is such that even those who know they should resist it succumb. And I think what that's saying is uh, we, we tend to rely, as clinicians in particular, uh, on our own personal experience, our, our own education, and most notably experiences that we've had relatively recently. No matter how experienced or busy you are, that's on a very law of small number data set. And I think the, the appeal of big data is can it contribute to overcoming some of these biases inherent in human judgment. Um, so I'd recommend it. It's an easy read, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, it started off uh, about NBA scouts, uh, and then I suddenly realized it was really talking about big data in medicine. So <laughs> it was uh, compelling. So I'm going to start by uh, asking uh, Lucilla to just sort of level set us all a little bit. Uh, it was back, I think, in 2011 um, when uh, a group of folks from each of the uh, five uh, campuses at that time with, with academic health systems uh, got together and thought about how we can work together in a number of areas under UC Braid, but one of the areas was UC Rex, the research exchange, and that was really the, the birthplace of getting us together to think about how we could coordinate our clinical uh, data. I think the driver at that time was to be more effective in clinical research, but clearly the uh, potential opportunities have expanded since then. Uh, Lucilla has uh, been a prominent uh, leader in UC Rex and has gone on to work with uh, big projects with PCORI um, in larger consortiums and m most recently a leadership in the uh, National Precision Medicine Cohort. So I'd love if you could give us your perspective on how we work through the governance issues, um, where are we in the journey of having a truly effective uh, research exchange or uh, data warehouse, and what are some of the lessons you've learned along the way that will hopefully inform us as we take next steps? Great. So, so uh, um, actually, it started one year before that in 2010, and we hijacked a little bit of the Athena meeting from, from Laura. Uh, to organize the informatics teams of the five uh, UC uh, medical centers at the time. So the founding parents are, uh, Mike is here, Lisa is uh, at, uh, at the end of the room, and uh, two others, and we decided 
we had clinical data warehouses for all of our centers, and we could exchange data. We could count um, occurrences across uh, the five, so we could enhance research, but also we always thought of quality of care as a fundamental part of this. Uh, so after that, we created a larger network that included the UCs, but also the VA data warehouse. That's the National VA uh, Clinical Data Warehouse, uh, and included other partners at Cedar sinai uh, San Mateo Medical Center from this area. So what uh, allowed this all to, to go together? One was trust, as it was uh, alluded to before, transparency, so no one is taking advantage of other people's data in order to get more grants and not... Uh, you know, share in everything. Uh, personalities, we, we uh, selected or self-selected uh, uh, very collaborative uh, individuals. And this carried on uh, more recently to the Precision Medicine Initiative, which we are the California Consortium. We lead that. And I would say for the, the moving forward with the UC Clinical Data Warehouse, uh, Again, the, the important aspects are not necessarily which technical platform, which this or which that, but the governance has to be so that everyone contributes and everyone uh, profits from uh, the the data and from the um, collaboration. Data, uh, so with Peter's uh, question, what do you do for a living? We organize data, and so therefore we save lives because the decisions are all based on data, administrative, clinical, research decisions, and so on. So we're very proud to have this big data for us. We are also very uh, cognizant of how we need to improve it uh, for research and for quality of care. And I, I think that's one thing that I, uh, I think moving into the future, if we don't have quality data, we don't have quality research. That's a great segue. Mike, um, uh, Karen mentioned this morning we have 15 million individual patient records. I think when UC Rex got started, the number that was quoted, at least when I looked up my notes from my first meeting, was somewhere between 11 and 12. And so we, we, we talk about that as a very vast data source. Uh, but Mike, while we were waiting here, introduced me to the term DERTA, um, which obviously uh, suggests that not all of that data is particularly smart data or clean data. It's actually dirty data. And so perhaps you could comment on, on that issue of the quality of the data. Um, everyone has mentioned it. What do we do about it? How bad is it? And when will we know we've fixed the problem? Great. Thank you. Um, the first thing I'll mention is that we're not alone. Uh, when it comes to DERTA. And that actually was coined by a colleague of mine, Rich Levinson at, at UC Davis. And I, I just thought it was brilliant because it really was exactly uh, characterizing what I was seeing. One of the things that happened when we did UC Rex and then P-Scanner and uh, we started to being, we were able to actually look at the data from a, almost as if you were going to look at data as, as uh, mounds of information at a distance, and it's very uneven. And we saw the unevenness within institutions, across institutions, um, and so I became interested in this data quality uh, issue, and um, the P-Scanner uh, project allowed us to, because we use a common sort of arrangement of data across the, the UC, 
we then were able to use a tool to what we call data profile, so sort of understand what it looks like. So it's not necessarily an improving tool, it's just you have to know where you're starting from. And, and, and the first thing that I, that I noticed was quite interesting because it was a little ironic um, that we had 23,000 individuals who passed away January 1st, 1980 in my institution. And I just thought for a minute, I thought, that's ironic because I run the death registry for the state. You know, and the first thing I noticed was, was that. Um, and of course, mortality is an important aspect of quality. If you don't understand your mortality um, and you can't count it, um, you're going to overestimate or under-report uh, what you're doing because you have deceased individuals in your denominator. And so when I saw that, and it completely explainable because I'm sure data was loaded at one point in history, but that's an anomaly, as I would call it, that we can't really change. I mean, we're not going to go back and you know, change all those numbers. So these are things that we really are inheriting, and it's normal and natural in data to have that, particularly historical data. And then moving forward, how can we actually have data that's, that's not dirt? It's less dirt and more high-quality data. You know, to uh, change the title here, I would try to change it to using quality data to drive quality, you know. Um, and that's a hard task um, to do. It's something I've sort of struggled with because I'm a clinician. I create dirt myself, unfortunately. Um, and it's rather difficult not to create dirta with the systems we have today. So it, it's a fundamental change of culture. Um, the systems are not designed around um, easy entry of high-quality data. We're also, as Laura pointed out, um, we're all creating the same data. And I think Julie said the same thing. We're re-entering the same information over and over and over. And we should really collaboratively create the record um, instead of creating siloed notes um, throughout the record. So I think we have to collaborate with our vendor, uh, our vendors, um, and, uh, because that's the reality of informatics today, is we're not building these systems ourselves. We're using systems that are commercial, and they will change if we demand that change. So I'll say that we're, we're, not, we're not alone. We're starting at a point of dirta, yes. I think there is value. I think we need to understand, by profiling the data, what data can drive what metrics. And so you really start from the metric and the business side. A lot of times I see people start data warehouse designs from the technology side, and it just doesn't make sense. It's what are you trying to accomplish with this and move it from that direction and then see, do you have the data to drive the metric correctly? Um, and I think that would be where I would start. And we really should have data quality programs th throughout as we're building the system, because otherwise we'll build a bridge to nowhere kind of thing. Um, Mike P, you, I think of everyone on the on the stage here, were the most recent uh, introduction of Epic into the clinical environment, and uh, you you were a big part of that at UCLA. Um, can can you reflect a little bit on how we how we bring this concept of big data down to the frontline clinician and into the workflow so that it can be actionable um, and how far away from that are we and what strategies do we need to be thinking about? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. Um, obviously, the EHRs have had an enormous impact on everything we do in clinical medicine today. And um, some would argue that they're still in the version one, and we haven't ever gotten to version two yet. And what is version two going to look like? Well, I think version two is going to have to have a lot of input from us, because the vendors are going to need that. But we also have to look at kind of what's causing some of these problems on the front lines. 
So if you start with the assumption that people want to do the right thing, people want to enter the data correctly, people want to put the right thing in the medical record, so why don't they? Well, let's look at the billing rules. Go back to 1996 when the billing rules were written. How many people were on an EHR in 1996 like we have today? Nobody. The rules have not been rewritten. So we are writing notes based on 1996 billing rules. It doesn't work anymore. If we want to have collaboration, we want to have one thing entered once, we can't have rules that tell us we have to enter it over and over and over again in every note. So that's an example. Meaningful use. A non-evidence-based program put in place to get people to put in electronic health records. Good idea in theory, but what it did was it forced the vendors to build into their EHRs collection tools for measures that really ended up not having any clinical relevance. And so if you ask the vendors what they say, and I do a lot, um, and, and my fellow CIO colleagues do as well, and we say, why do you build it like this? Well, the answer is because they're making us. And who are the they? Well, regulators. So we've got billing rules, we've got meaningful use rules, and then another example that I love to use is medical student notes. So we pride ourselves on being an education institution, and we want our medical students to be part of it. In fact, I would argue that medical student notes are the best notes in our electronic health record, but they don't count. In fact, if you sign a medical student note, that is fraud when you bill Medicare. So we each, all of us, have figured out ways to kind of segregate them off. We need to push back on that and say medical student notes should be bar part of the medical record and we can use them as part of our processes. So while the technology and the electronic health records certainly need to improve and become more usable, so do all the rules and regulations that go into what we do each and every day. And I think if, if we as a community, as the UC community, stand up and say, these things need to change. We partner with Johns Hopkins. We partnered with Brigham and Women's, all of our you know, colleagues. And we say, this has got to change. This will help us, I think, move to what I believe is EHR 2.0, which is where it's really clinician-driven, patient-driven. I think patients can enter a majority of the information into electronic health record and get to that next level of good little data that becomes big data. Great. Um before I turn to a tool, I'd like to just uh, build on, you, you mentioned medical students, and uh, in, the, in the prior panel there was this uh, ageism discussion. Um, uh, but we are training the next generation of healthcare providers, and, and this is for any, anyone on the panel to comment on, um, what are we doing well, what, what are we doing at all to make sure that our trainees um, uh, come out with the competencies they need for big data accurate entry, but even more important, uh, uh, educated analytic capabilities to understand what, what it's saying. Uh, are there best practices out there? What, what are we doing across the system? That's for me. I'll take a stab at it. Well, it's for anyone. I'll, I'll say really quick, I think we can do a lot more. Medical schools represented here. Right. I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll have something to say, too. Um, I think we can do a lot more. I think um, we are certainly not modeling the right things to do. So the medical students are seeing copy and paste in these, these terrible notes, and that's what they're doing. Um, as attendings, um, we don't correct them as much as we should. We don't give that feedback. Um, the patient story is being lost. And I think that's absolutely critical as we, as we, as we go to push button H and P's, I call them. And I'm, I, I don't, 
I didn't turn on that feature at UCLA, and that, we can debate that at, a, at another meeting, but I really wanted the patient's story to be in the system, whether that's dictated, whether it's typed. It can't be translated into a bunch of discrete fields, and so we have to learn how to use that data better. But I think, I think we have an opportunity across the system from an analytics standpoint, whether it be uh, looking at how they're performing on exams, how they're performing on um, standardized patients and such, and providing that analytics back to them is going to be very, very critical. But I would say the most important thing is role modeling from attending physicians on what is the appropriate thing to do. So that's on the data entry side. What about on the being the recipient of hopefully sophisticated data analytics in the next few years? Yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that students are not really getting exposed to what could be possible in terms of analytics. Uh, part of that isn't just a problem with the educational system. We're all reinventing how we're training medical students. We have a new curriculum here at UCSF. But part of it is we don't also have enough role models on all five campuses showing, even from, from the physician side, how to do this right or the, the innovator uses that data. Uh, in every other field, I think we want trainees to do better than the mentors. And in this one, we have a hard time because the mentors themselves don't really know what could be done with the data yet. I think uh, here on stage, you, you, see you're, you have proponents of data utilizers and analytics. Um, but still, we've break, barely broken onto any campus, really, in terms of decisions, whether population decisions, individual decisions being made on data. Uh, we've got to train the trainers first here, I think, train the mentors. Yeah, also, I, I, we have training programs and so on, but for medical school, I think it's very important also, since we have uh, many in the audience here, is that on admissions, you start thinking about people who have different backgrounds, not just the regular pre-med, but those engineers, those computer scientists, those who want to really blend the disciplines. And a common comment that I have when, when fellows come back uh, for training after medical school, after residence is, well, I was good at thinking before, but then I got into the mode of memorizing everything, and, and now I need, I'm rusty about that. So, so, so please don't, don't let that skill go away for those who, who ever had it. I just want to make a quick comment, because uh, earlier I mentioned this. Actually, we've been here most, most of the day, and I think this is the first time we've actually discussed Medical students, trainees. And I would add right? nursing students. And nursing students, and uh, we have a whole host of trainees. Uh, and so we are educating the next generation. So that is a big advantage for us. If, you're, if our overall goal is to transform healthcare, um, we're, we are the tip of the spear, so to speak. And the lesson learned here that I hark back to is most of us in the room who've done a clinical note in the last 20 years. Has, have done it according to what Larry Weed said we should do. And he didn't have the government. He didn't have billing uh, telling us what to do. He did it, and the way he did it, he had a lot of pushback. What he did strategically was he went to medical schools and pitched the idea of structured uh, documentation would lead to structured thinking. And he succeeded. And here, we're, we're all evidence of that. So... I would just say that we are in a position to make that change happen, uh, for sure. I just want to put in a plug for two things. So uh, one thing a lot of physicians don't realize, 
um, is that uh, this field of clinical informatics is actually a board-certifiable specialty now. So you can actually be board-certified. Uh, we were just trying to count here. I think two out of the five UC Health uh, institutions uh, already have uh, ACGME-certified board, uh, so ACGME-certified uh, clinical informatics fellowship programs. They're small. There are about two fellows per year or so. They're two-year fellowships. They include rotations to actually do some projects, data analytics. You get into the weeds. You come in with a lot of uh, prior background. I think uh, the other three campuses are working on getting those approved, too. So I think uh, in some ways we're going to get more of those kind of new fellows that can then be training the residents and the medical students and things like that. The one other thing I'll put in a plug for, and it's a little bit easier at UCSF, uh, one of the kind of simple, stupid things we did in this Institute for Computational Sciences, we partnered with a group called Software Carpentry, which is this nonprofit uh, that just teaches how to write code. And kind of really simple, and it's, it costs a couple thousand dollars. It's really that small. Uh, we just paid for enough volunteers uh, to just make sure we had a seat available for every single student at UCSF, whether medical, dental, pharmacy, or nursing, to learn Python and R. And we did this through the library, because the libraries are really good at this, much better than we give them credit for. I think that's a new role for the library, this kind of teach this kind of data analytics. So I think we can get there, but we've got to use newer types of ways and just to think about new, new medical disciplines that are growing, and we've got to adopt them. I'm gonna, can I add one more thing? Yeah. So um, at UCLA, we're in our fourth year of our uh, resident informatics program. And we actually just got an article published in Jamia describing this. But basically, we have a, a year-long program where residents apply from all different specialties. And every month, they have a curriculum where they come after, after hours, within the work hours, so no one has to panic about that, um, and learn clinical informatics. And then they do a year-long project where we actually give them access to build in the Epic system. So they build a, a, a project based on initial analytics saying, we have a problem that we'd like to fix. They learn change management. They learn how to fail, which is very important. And some of them have been incredibly successful, and they've pr presented at different national conferences. Um, so um, this is something we want to do across the UCs as well. But the residents are unique in the sense because they're you know, new and excited about medicine, but they're also on the front line, so they understand probably a little better what the medical students don't in terms of processes and issues on, on the clinical side. Thank you. Uh, just to complete first, congratulations on the paper. Great journal, by Thank the Thank you. Way. Yes, it is a great journal, I must say. So is the She's the editor, yeah. Okay. <laughs> And, um, yeah, and in San Diego, we also have a clinical informatics ACGME accredited uh, fellowship in addition to the T15 NLM, National Library of Medicine, yeah. NIH program. And, and it's fascinating to see, um, especially, so I used to direct the same program in the Boston area. Uh, but we never had as many surgeons as we did in San Diego. And that, to me, means that when the chair is engaged, as ours is, you can get different specialties to, to um, participate. And this, this has been very exciting to us. Great. So, Atula, when, when we extracted you from a farm about 40 miles to the <laughs> south of here a couple of years ago, I know one of the attraction was the fact that there was this uh, UC Health concept and uh, a large database that was being developed and, and uh, et cetera. You've now been here a couple of years and have been working actively on understanding what that is. Um, 
Uh, you've managed to convince the CEOs to contribute a little, little more money to keep it going. Where do you see uh, the next, say, uh, two years, and then where would you hope we are five years from now? Yes, yeah, sure. So, uh, if, if we're not resource constrained. Uh, if we're not resource constrained. Let's uh, think about those. Uh, so first of all, yeah, it's, it's been about it's still been less than two years since I've been here. And I think, you know, following the national narrative, it's really easy to be negative. Uh, but I think here it's more accurate to be positive in our own institutions here. I still challenge any of you to find five academic medical centers that work so well together like our five do. And that's really why I moved up the road. I still live there, uh, but I commute up uh, 280 every day. So if I think about... Um, what the next five years holds. So I think a lot about uh, the types of data we have and the kind of data that we're going to get to. And just to be didactic for a minute, so everyone knows what we're talking about in big data, what are the kinds of data we're thinking about. There's six kinds, there's probably a lot of kinds, but six big kinds of data that we should be thinking about a lot. Uh, the older ones are like claims data that came up earlier in terms of the bills we send and ICD-9 and 10 codes. A lot of data, voluminous, we can buy that kind of data, it's commercially available. Uh, there's pharmacy data, the electronic scripts we write. But the next four are the newer types of data that we're really trying to take advantage of, electronic health record data. I think we're not really constrained to make better use of our electronic health record data. All the vital signs, all the meds, uh, all the procedures that we do. I think imaging data is another big one. We have UC-wide efforts uh, underway to just capture all the images. It might be radiology and pathology. And then the next two, I think, uh, again, not really resource-constrained are patient-generated data. Uh, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. So there could be surveys or behavioral, but it could also be wearables, location tracking, research kit, all those kinds of things. And then the final new one to me is clinical research data, clinical trials data. Uh, we run thousands of trials, and our patients participate in them, and we, we see the benefit of clinical trials. I see a lot of that raw data coming out uh, and um, how we can really augment what we know about our patients through what we, we learn about them through clinical trials. So I think we're going to get there. Um, the one thing that hasn't come up uh, at all so far today, too, is uh, uh, this concept of precision medicine. And I think uh, that's where I see the big challenge right now. So when I think about when I think ahead in five years, I see this massive collision course that's going to happen if we're not careful. We don't think about redoing our thinking. And what's a collision course? Just think about two trains that are about to hit each other. One is this train of standardized care, checklists, order sets, bundles, reducing variation, Southwest Airlines only flies one kind of plane kind of thinking, right? That's one train, versus precision medicine, where every patient is going to end up being treated in a different way, taking into account their preferences, their molecules, and their behaviors, and end of one, right? And both of those trains have a lot of support. They both make a lot of sense. But if we don't rethink our thinking, those two are going to collide with each other. And the new way to think about it is to think about the molecular side, the social behavioral side, and the quality side, all as being equal parity inputs into what goes into determining the outcome of our patients. Of course, we got to get better at electronically figuring out the outcome of our patients. I grant you it's not easy. But we have to all be thinking in terms of peers. The molecular folks don't talk much to the quality folks, yet they both have the same level of input into figuring out what is going to actually happen to these patients. And that's the new level of discussion I think we got to really get to in five years, that we are all in the same boat trying to help our patients. That's great. Um, I'd like to come back to what I, I'm going to frame as a bit of a dichotomy. It probably is a false dichotomy for sure, but I'm going to frame it just for fun. Um, you, you focused on the structural data. And you talked about 
getting the patient's story down in a narrative, unstructured way. Um, how, how do we play those off each other? And what are the tools that are going to be needed to play them off? I, I was at a, a meeting recently where almost all of the really big technology companies on this planet were, were present, and the entire conversation was on the, uh, the, the, rat, the even to the technology experts, the unexpected rapidity of the influence of machine learning and artificial intelligence. And um, Sergey Brin gave a, a session, and he was asked, which two industries does he think are most ripe for disruption by these technologies? And without thinking for a second, he said, education and medicine. It was reassuring, given that's what we do. Um, so is that the solution to the unstructured data, or is there a dichotomy or not? No, go ahead and start, since I'm the structured guy. All right, I'll be unstructured. Um, I actually believe that we need both. You know, in the record, I'm 100% in agreement that what we do is storytelling or at least recording a story and making sure it's there to be to reflect, and often it reflects the patient's values, their experience. I don't know that you could actually make that in a structured fashion in an efficient way. Um, so I think we're going to need that kind of thing. There's... Uh, software out there that does what we call sentiment analysis. I'm sure they're hard at work with all the tweeting that's going on, trying to figure out what's going on, uh, you know, and the population and their thinking. So I think there is technology like that. It's only getting better. So I would call that sort of the one direction. But I think we also need to have structured data elements. So I don't think we need to structure everything. I used to, you know, teach in the informatics program, and this whole thing of coding comes up, and I say, you know, don't code nothing and don't code everything. So there's an art to doing that and deciding what you need to actually structure. And uh, so you really need to, I think, be clever about it and be smart um, about what you're going to structure. And uh, in our one source project, Laura, Laura mentioned, um, we've had many discussions about this, and uh, we came up with sort of key data elements around a particular condition. And these are the key data elements that are used over and over to drive certain decisions and are used um, repeatedly for downstream uh, sort of analyses. And those are ones you really are high value targets for structure. Um, not that the storytelling is not high value, I'm just pointing out for analytics, but the storytelling is part of medicine should be there, no doubt. Um, and I believe actually we don't do a good job of it. We do not put in, I try to teach my house staff now, ask the patient what their goals are when they're here and make sure that, that you're an advocate for that by voicing that in your note. We do not do that. There is no section that said, that, you know, they're subjective, but there's no section that says patients' goals of care. That should be part of the, right before the assessment plan or right within it, and when we don't have that. So I think that's a problem. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and if, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is the next version of the EHR. And I think it's going to be a much more voice-activated, dictated kind of approach. As, as our dictation software gets better and better and better, and we figure out how to take the EHR from a you know, 30-inch screen on a desk to your iPad, where you can do your data entry, and you can dictate in, and you can tell it orders, structured data is going to get less and less and less. And um, I think that's true, because if you look at what's happening now, it's just not working very well. 
So I, I don't think we can take what we have now and make it more structured and be successful. I think we have to look into the future and see where it's going. And so I think these technologies are going to be critical in terms of understanding the unstructured data. So figuring out how to de-identify it is a great example of what we're going to need to do in the research world. And then figuring out how to take the data elements out of it using NLP and machine learning and then bring that back into a structured database on the back end. So ultimately, to the physician, to the patients, to the, to the story, to all of those most important things, um, we can gather that information and then on the back end do the hard work because that's not the work that our, our physicians should be doing. It's a great, great place to end. So I'd like to thank the panel. Please join me in thanking them. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.